The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, April the 22nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I am joined today by our political editor, Pat Leahy. Hi, Pat. Hi, Hugh. And I'm also joined by Michael Taft, who's a, who's a researcher for the SIP2 Trade Union, and he also writes about political economy on the Notes on the Front blog. Hi, Michael. Good afternoon. We invited Michael on because we wanted to get a, a left perspective, I suppose, on the current political landscape, uh, but one that wasn't tied directly to any single political party, particularly those uh, political parties who are currently being wooed by Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, um, trying, who are trying to persuade one or other of them, the Social Democrats, the Labour Party, um, or the Greens in particular, to join a new government coalition. But first of all, I suppose, Pat, we should turn to the fact of the the very stark economic predictions which we received yesterday from Pascal Donoghue and the government uh, to kind of set the landscape of what any future government is going to be heading into later this year and indeed next year. Yeah, I mean, in some respects, I suppose the numbers in yesterday's document, which was the Stability Programme Update, or SPU for short, it's a, an assessment of the immediate future of government finances that is required by EU law. So all member state governments must submit that to the European Commission by the end of April. And what it does, I suppose, it sets out the economic forecasts, the amount of budgetary headroom or otherwise that government is likely to have when it is constructing its budget for next year. Now, ordinarily, it looks, you know, some years into into the future. But in current circumstances, clearly that is fraught with all sorts of difficulties. I mean, the numbers weren't, I suppose, all that surprising, given that, you know, those sort of projections had been touched upon by the ESRI, by the central bank in recent weeks. Um, But there was still a sort of a, at least a metaphorical intake of breath, I suppose, when Pascal Donoghue announced them. Because when you stand back and, and, and just look at the the quantum of debt and of the projected deficit that he's talking about, budget deficit of uh, somewhere less than 8% of GDP this year in cash terms, 23 billion, possibly another 14 billion next year. And somebody I was talking to about this yesterday said, you know, God forgive me, but there's an awful bang of 2008 off this. Now, both Pascal Donoghue and his chief economist, John McCarthy, who presented the figures yesterday, were, you know, very insistent to point out that there's very significant differences between now and 2008. We don't have the sort of structural problems in uh, in the economy uh, that we did then. Public finances go into it in reasonably good health and comparatively good health to uh, uh, to other similar countries to us. But at the same time, you couldn't shake off the sense that 
for the second time in just over a decade, Ireland is facing an economic crisis and a crisis in its public finances, albeit that we are in a better position to tackle those problems than we were at the beginning of the financial crisis. There are still problems and they will face the next government, whoever comprises it. Michael, I think we're all, all of us, familiar with that sense of creeping existential dread. We've all experienced it in one way or another over the last four four to six weeks. Um, do these kind of prognostications fill you with that? Or are you in, by any chance a little more optimistic about how we might get out of this thing? Well, uh, I don't know if optimistic would be the word, but no, it doesn't. Uh, uh, I don't think we should allow it to, to, to fill ourselves with uh, dread. I think that uh, given that we have never been in these this type of uh, situation before, where the government has actively uh, shut down large portions of the economy, like other governments have done, and what the impact will be in trying to raise that up, uh, given the uncertainties regarding the virus itself, the idea of a second wave, a vaccine, never mind the behavioral changes of people. I think what you have to do then is you have to ground any type of fiscal and economic policy in, 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 in as certain, uh, as certain foundation as possible. Uh, for instance, uh, we should dispense with the idea that in the medium term, we're going to try to return the uh, public finances back to a balanced budget. It is both unnecessary uh, and could actually limit our ability to grow the economy and to ensure so- social equity. Uh, premature attempts to create a balanced budget scenario uh, under the guise of trying to bring the debt under the control or deficit under control could actually uh, impede recovery and uh, cause enormous social damage. So uh, unfortunately, uh, the framework document, there are only certain the only one certain thing they had in it regarding fiscal policy, if you will, uh, was to say that there shouldn't be any tax increases or USC increases. But we should probably delete that and actually put in that over the lifetime of the next government, we're not going to be too pushed about moving towards a balanced budget. What we want to do is focus on containing the debt, reducing the debt, uh, and what I mean by that, the debt-GDP ratio, and uh, use our public expenditure. Uh, for productive investment in areas that will give us a very good return in the short term uh, to ensure social equity, to ensure that there is uh, no rise in household or business debt, that there is no rise in household. In fact, we want to reduce poverty because uh, that's a fiscally beneficial thing. Uh, So uh, when you don't quite know what to do, what you should then do is do the common sense things very carefully and go forward from that. So that would be my, my starting point. And I think that uh, if we adopted that, I think people would would hopefully get a little more sense of certainty uh, and a little uh, a, a greater sense of security, uh, though that might be a bit much given the current crisis we're in. So there's there's a lot in there, and I want to return to a couple of those things a little bit later, Pat. Uh, in in terms of the the Fianna Fáil Fine Gael framework document, which which Michael referenced there, but but you, Pat, you mentioned you mentioned two thousand and eight, and as Michael says, this is a very different situation from two thousand and eight. We may not be exactly sure what kind of a situation it is, but it is very different. Not 
least because the nature of the crash, the shutdown, that the the deliberate shutdown of the economy is extremely different. Not least because, as Pascal Donoghue has never ceases to point out, the kind of stability of the financial institutions is not in question in the same way. But also because, in terms of history, it's twelve years later, and everybody looks back at what was done in the years after two thousand and eight, and there's a lot of, and it's not just second guessing. There's a lot of criticism of the measures which are broadly characterised as austerity, which some will argue brought us through that dark time, but others will argue were wrong that time around and are even more wrong this time and in fact will just not be possible to implement because the people of Ireland and indeed the people of many other countries just won't accept them. Yeah, I mean, you know, not to rehearse the arguments of the last period of of, uh, economic crisis and subsequent austerity um and and there's a very you know voluminous and well argued body uh, of thought that 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 says the approach many aspects of the approach taken by sub by the first of Fianna Fáil green government last time and then by the Fine Gael labor government caused immense social damage in the way that it addressed the crisis in the uh, the the financial crisis and the crisis in the public uh, finances, but what you have to acknowledge is that however you, whatever you think of how it was done, it was successful on its own terms, in that the economy rebounded back pretty quickly, the public finances were repaired. And subsequent governments were able to get to a position relatively quickly where social spending was again increased uh, year on year. So it, I, I think that facing into this, you know, particular crisis in the uh, in in the public finances, and I suppose we all kind of look at it and we think at this stage that, you know, a couple of years of 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 growth may may get us out of it. But it seems to me that you can't ignore the fact for some remedial action on the public finances, not because, and I, I, I've read what Michael has written about deficit spending, and uh, I agree with it to a large extent, but what I don't think is possible or is unlikely to be possible over the coming years is to continue running large deficits uh, in, uh, indefinitely. And I think that is so because there's going to be an awful lot of governments looking to borrow large amounts of money on bond markets over the coming years. And just as they did the last time, it wasn't that governments relished tax increases or public spending cuts or public pay cuts. Of course, they didn't. But they needed to gain the confidence of the markets so that the markets would continue to finance the uh, uh, would continue to finance the country. Ultimately, that failed and we were into a bailout, which only meant we were borrowing from somebody else. But similarly, that borrowing came with strings attached and with conditions attached. And while I don't anticipate at this stage that we are facing that sort of a scenario, we cannot ignore the sentiment of 
the bond markets insofar as we wish to maintain a national debt, which has to be not repaid but rolled over on a constant basis, and insofar as we wish to continue with some measure which I think is wise of deficit spending for the uh, for the next few years, we cannot ignore the sentiment of the markets, and it is likely that they, I think, going on past behaviour, it is likely that they will. Uh, you know they may not they may not require the same doses of austerity that were implemented the last time but what would they will require is a path to recovery and growth that they deem to be credible never mind what we want if we wish to keep tapping them for funding we will have to pay attention to what they want I wonder, is there a question of degree here in as much as there's a disagreement or perhaps a difference of emphasis between the two of you um, there, Michael? Just for our, our listeners' point of view, you you wrote a blog post uh, a day or two ago and you look back, it was very interesting, you look back at the period from the late 1980s when the country was really in the terrible economic doldrums through to the late 1990s and it was a period um, of recovery and, you know, ultimately quite dramatic improvement in the in the country's economy and it was a period throughout which um, successive governments um, ran deficits and those deficits obviously contributed to the national debt but because the economy was growing at the pace it did the national debt as a proportion of our overall economy shrank yeah that that that's correct I mean uh, the idea that uh, 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 that you need to uh, reduce the debt GDP ratio. And I think, and I'll come back to a point that I think a good point that Pat made, the debt GDP ratio is the key uh, metric. Uh, you know, the level of your debt combined with your ability to service that debt. Those are the key metrics uh, that uh, bond markets look at. And when you look at that period, uh, and indeed, if actually you do a simple calculation, everybody can do it from home. Uh, it works for governments and businesses and households. If your income rises faster than your debt, then that debt burden will fall. And I think that's the key metric that uh, many uh, outside observers and uh, domestic players will be looking at. But Pat is right that we do have to keep an eye on the international markets because the international markets have proven in the past to be quite fickle and irrational. I mean, what else could you say about uh, uh, investors who kept piling money uh, into financial institutions and property funds during the height of what everybody knew was going to turn out badly, which was the, the property speculation boom? But they kept doing that. And John Maynard Keynes wrote about this decades ago. Investors and markets follow a herd mentality. So a few people jump in, everyone jumps in. A few people jump out, everyone jumps out. It's not like they've analyzed the situation. It's not like they have any more facts than uh, the people listening to uh, this podcast will have. It's just that's the the, the way they, that they uh, uh, react. So going forward, it uh, uh, the metric will be how we bring our debt under control. Now, there's two ways you can do that. One, uh, well, actually, the best way is mm-hmm. to ensure that the investment that you make now, the use that you make up with your deficit is actually directed at those things which are going to drive sustainable growth. I'll give you one example. If, for instance, the government, and this requires structural change, this is not about a return to normal, but if the government would say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to build public housing for all, that essentially means that we're going to remove the means test for social housing 
and we're going to set up a cost rental basis by which everyone can apply to get uh, accommodation on the rental market. In a sense, that puts public housing in competition with pri the private sector for rental accommodation. Now, this would reduce rents by hundreds of euros a month. What better boost for the productive economy, never mind the, the tenants paying, you know, paying now much reduced rent, what better boost to the productive economy than to free up this money previously going to landlords, in many cases, um, uh, uh, foreign landlords, and, uh, you know, the money's fleeing out of the country, uh, uh, put it in their pocket and let them spend it. Uh, and spend it into the economy that's producing goods and services. That would be a real recovery, uh, a real type of recovery program. You could actually make the same case for childcare. Uh, if we were to uh, actually just take the program that we have now under the emergency and apply that into childcare, you would have greatly reduced uh, childcare fees. That would not only be a benefit for um, the households, but then they would have all this extra money to spend in, in, in the productive economy. So it's not just—it's not just a matter of having deficit spending for the sake of it. It is a matter of ensuring that you spend it in the right areas, along with the structural reforms that are necessary. And what we are—you know—what we should be looking for is uh, a new type of childcare model, a new type of housing model, and of course, there will be a big demand to maintain some of the better features in the emergency measures the government has taken in the healthcare services, namely a single tier service, uh, free GP stuff to take that and apply that to the health service. Because again, that would be a huge boost to the productive economy. That will grow the economy. That should grow the economy faster than any rise in debt. And so when international investors come to look at Ireland, they'll say, wow, they're growing their economy. Uh, this looked like sustainable, sustainable growth. It's not based on any kind of speculative boom. And they're bringing the debt under control. That and a combination of the ECB continuing uh, their um, uh, program of essentially printing money, you know, uh -huh. their uh, OMT operations, which, by the way, is probably going to continue for quite a while, given the nature of this and how it's affecting throughout the entire Eurozone. Uh, that should give us a bit of security. Still have a lot of other issues to address, but those are the foundations by which a government could, I think, uh, a new government uh, could uh, not only ensure fiscal success, but also uh, bring about social security, which is, you know, right now is needed so badly. Just to be clear, Pat, there, there are two different elements that are contributing already and will continue to contribute to this ballooning deficit. And one is the emergency within which we find ourselves right now, which is likely to continue at least for the end of this till the end of this year. And I think almost certainly into into the following year, too. And these vast amounts of money which are going into supporting people in their jobs, companies staying afloat and all the other things and the and the huge medical uh, medical costs as well. And then there's what Michael is talking about and which increasingly I think a lot of people are talking about, which is the more profound changes which will be needed from the society that emerges after that and the money which will need to be found to spend on those things, like a universal healthcare system, like a childcare system, uh, like housing, uh, in a way in which our system really hasn't taken on board over the last 10 years or so. Um, are we geared for a change of that sort? Well, I'm not sure about that, but we probably need to get geared up fairly quickly 
I think it is. I think it is true. You're you're right. I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. There's kind of two elements to the costs of all this. There's the immediate uh, costs in health and uh, and welfare and income support and all of that, and then there's the longer term recurring costs of a larger state, which has seemed to me from the very beginning of this likely to be one of the most significant results from this crisis. And the immediate upfront costs, you know, that massive deficit of this year, in a way, you know, that's that's less of a problem because that can be, you know, dealt with by upfront borrowing, which we don't have difficulty at the moment. It will go on to the national debt. The trickier questions, I think, will come about the recurring costs of a larger state, of greater social provision. And Michael instance, some of the aspects of that there, including, you know, public housing, public childcare, public health care and all of that, which I mean, I, I, I think there would probably be a greater social and political appetite for after this, the difficulty for politics. And I think very much the task of politics will be to figure out how to pay for that over the over the medium term and you know all all governments will face choices in and between those competing imperatives so michael you know talked about the need to you know uh, to, for for large scale public uh, building of, of 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 public housing and 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 lots of people would agree with them about that, but also childcare and also health. And you could immediately, off the top of your head, we asked any of our listeners, everybody would have their own list. And how whatever that list ends up being for the next government, the available resources are likely to be pretty stretched to meet it, and therefore there will be some choices necessary between the ver- the various competing needs. And I just don't think there's any getting away from that. And everybody talks at the moment like, uh, and, I, and I mean that even in the context of the state uh, being, being larger, everybody talks at the moment about difficult decisions, but nobody has yet got around to explaining or investigating what those difficult decisions will be. I'll tell you what they'll be. They'll be how to pay for these uh, for these public services and public investments and which of them should be prioritised over the lifetime of the next government. Uh, you know, and I, I don't think there's anything, I think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think Michael would dispute it. That is the business of politics to come to those decisions, to, you know, to see what, the public wants and how best that can be reflected in the policies of the next uh, of the next government as to whether we as a polity are prepared for those choices i don't see much evidence of it uh, of it yet but that's okay too michael can i ask you about that because it one of the things that's striking about that framework document is really almost the only concrete commitment in there is not to increase income tax and USC, as as you've pointed out already. And um, both parties have been criticised, uh, 
um, particularly in the Irish Times, actually, for um, for making that commitment above all others. But isn't it true that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are just jumping on a bandwagon which was set rolling quite a long time ago by most of the parties of the left, including the ones who they're seeking to enter coalition with at the moment? I was listening to the uh, the economist Stephen Kinsler the other day on uh, on the Echo Chamber podcast, and he was talking about the other part of this, which is the change in the way in which we raise money to finance um, all these things in the future. And he he suggested that, um, and I think he would agree with a lot of what you were talking about, but he suggested that not only was it going to be necessary to look perhaps at income tax at high earners, let's say over people earning over €100,000, but it was also going to be necessary at looking at taxing wealth and assets in a way that that, that hasn't been done so far in this country, looking at um, reforming the property tax to bring in a site value tax, which is generally in, in some quarters, at least in progressive quarters, seen as having better outcomes, looking at corporate tax, but also he made the point extending the tax base to include the very large number of people who don't pay tax in this country at at lower income levels at the moment, but who, if they are in Denmark or if they're in Sweden, will be paying some tax. And that all those kinds of things are being avoided, not just by Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, but by the Social Democrats, um, by Labour and perhaps by the Green Party as well. I'm not sure about the Green Party's position on those. Well, I think that, yes, all these things have to be looked at. All these things have to be uh, questioned and interrogated. And I don't think that there's any area that should be out of bounds. I mean, we, we don't need um, the, these sacred truths, you know, anymore. That's not that's not going to do, and that's not going to do for a new period. But if I can just take a step back, because all those things you mentioned, you know, shifting the tax base onto um, assets and capital, you know, to relieve uh, the tax base on labor, I think a lot of economists who across the ideological spectrum would agree with that. Issues of uh, how companies pay their way uh, in the economy, how individuals do. But when I say let's take a step back, let's not forget, oh, oh this is an emergency. This has happened from you know uh, an external event. But usually the case is that the public finances, in many respects, reflect the uh, activity at the economic base. And I'll give you a couple of things because you mentioned the issue of Denmark and uh, you know other uh, European uh, economies that tax people at uh, lower incomes, which is true. Uh, however, when we look at Ireland, we see that there's nearly half a million, possibly more, half a million employees who are on some type of precarious contract. Uh, we find that actually 20% of households where there's one person at work actually suffer deprivation. We have the highest levels of low pay in the OECD, with the exception of, and this might surprise people, Germany. Uh, and, and in all of that, a large part of that is uh, derived from the fact that these workers have no voice in the workplace. So if you're looking at a soft fiscal measure, something that would really, that would assist, not going to solve it, but would assist our public finances, uh, you know, increase living standards, increase tax revenue, and increase people's kind of uh, uh, satisfaction in work is to give uh, every employee the right to collective bargaining in the workplace. Now you say, well, what's that got to do with the fiscal? But the point is, collective bargaining has been shown uh, to raise wage floors, uh, to reduce precariousness. And in the case of precariousness, very hard for people to fully participate in consumer society if they don't know what their income or their working hours are going to be next week or the week afterwards. 
so by creating certainty in the workplace, uh, by raising the wage floors through collective bargaining, that's one area where we can actually shift the way we do business in business, in the economic base, to, to, to fiscal benefits. Uh, and uh, to give you an example, you use the thing Denmark. I mean, if you compare uh, uh, wages in Denmark, uh, in the low-paid sectors like hospitality, uh, retail, certain administrative support services, uh, their wages are far, far higher because they have, they have uh, uh, collective bargaining arrangements. And here's the funny thing is they don't even have a national minimum wage. They don't rely on a national minimum wage for higher wages for those at the lower end of the spectrum. Uh, they use collective bargaining. So collective bargaining would be one of those uh, important tools that we could do to affect structural change. Uh, I mean, people, for instance, take a look at the illness benefit. The first thing the government had to admit was that the illness benefit prior to the crisis, uh, the payment was woefully inadequate, about 200 euros a week for a single person. So they immediately increased it to 300 and then again to 350. They saw mass unemployment coming down the line and they said the 200 euros was completely inadequate. And that is correct. I mean, in other on continental countries, um, uh, a worker becomes sick for the first three, four, five weeks, they get 100% of their pay, 100% of their pay through social insurance fund. If they become unemployed, they get 70, 60, 70, 80% of their pay for anywhere from nine months to a year. In other words, there's much greater social protection there. How is it paid for? It is not paid for by tax. It is paid for through what's called a social wage, employer social insurance. And therefore, uh, over the long term, combining collective bargaining with employers, increasing employer social insurance in uh, integrated with collective bargaining for wages, we can actually achieve those, those positive outcomes in terms of income support without raising taxes. It becomes a matter of collective bargaining, integrating the uh, wage rise that a worker might get ordinarily, plus the increase in the social insurance, which is called the social wage. So there are innovative ways that we can go about restructuring the way we do things without, with, with not only not being a cost, but would also be of huge fiscal benefit, never mind the social benefits that accrue from that. So in short, what we need is to learn from other countries and engage in innovative thinking, and no subject is off the table. I mean, Pat, what Michael is talking about there is, he, he, and he's, I think he talks about it in his blog quite a lot as well, is that there are structural changes. Which are, this isn't just about spending more money or spending less money or raising more money or raising less money. It's about bringing in certain kind of structural changes which are driven by, perhaps by a different vision than we've had over the last while of the way a society would be run. If I were, let's move to the politics of it, if I were a member of the Social Democrats or the Labour Party, or the Greens, and I looked at the prospect of going in with either a party of six seats or a party of 12 seats to combine with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, who combined her in the low 70s. I get a minister and a junior minister. I'm kind of scratching away in the corner. I look around at the potential opposition benches. We've got a left-wing block of 60 or thereabouts, uh, which could have a reasonable expectation of going into an election in the next year or so and increasing that substantially and perhaps having a first left-wing coalition in the history of the state. Wouldn't I sit and twist for the moment? Well, I suppose that's a decision you would <laughs> you would have to make. Um, I mean, if you look at the, the, the Green 
party, say, for instance, which is, I suppose, the, if you were looking from Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael's point of view, is the plum prize of the smaller parties. It's got 12 seats added to Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael's numbers, plus some independence. Gives you high degree, I would have thought, of stability once the administration can maintain its internal coherence and a reasonable prospect of getting, you know, a government of uh, to, that would last four or five years. I think going back to one of the points that 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 Michael makes is that, that that this is a time of very significant possibility. One of the reasons that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, while they are nothing like as powerful as they used to be in our politics, they're still you know, two of the three largest parties in the Dáil. And if you hold to the belief, and many people do, that they're essentially the same party, they're by some distance the largest uh, party in the Dáil. But one of the reasons they have been politically successful is that they have always maintained a high degree of uh, ideological pliability, if I can put it like that. So both have been in centre-right and centre-left governments, uh, certainly when uh, judged by the extent to which public spending, say, for instance, has uh, increased uh, under them. So I think that a small party would enjoy greater influence over policy than its mere numbers might suggest. So take the Social Democrats, for instance, whose signature policy was uh, was on healthcare and slauncha care. I think that both both parties, both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, would be prepared to largely adopt uh, Social Democrats' policy on health, on climate change, and going back to the the Greens, uh, where we where where we started. Uh, I think that the Greens could be able to largely write. I mean, they won't get everything that they want. Nobody does in a coalition government. But they would be able to largely write climate policy for uh, for the next government. Now, it's a matter for them, I suppose, to weigh up those opportunities versus the possibility of um, participation in a future left-led government. Personally, I can see arguments, trying to look at it from their, from, from their perspectives, I can see arguments either way. But I think staying out for the small parties is not a political free pass either. I think that voters do see that this is a pretty unprecedented time. There is clearly a need for a government to be put together. There is an opening for smaller parties to participate in that government. And I think that if they forego that, uh, I think that they will face some degree of a backlash from voters. How intense and enduring that is, I suppose, really depends on the circumstances as they play out over the coming months. But I don't think that staying out is uh, is a cost-free option for them, however they frame it for themselves as uh, as as foregoing power now to have more power uh, in the future. I think it's at least a contestable 
proposition that they would have more influence over policy in a future left-led government. Michael, I think you have a somewhat different view. Uh, well, first off, it's for you know each of the party, the the what they call the smaller parties, uh, to make a decision that uh, what they feel is in uh, first off in their best interest and in the best interest of the country. And that's going to be a difficult debate. And uh, uh, you know, uh, there's a number of positions being presented. They're all legitimate, but um, I I would uh, I would. Yeah, I would pose it this way, and maybe for uh, activists and party members to consider uh, when they're coming up to the decision. I think one of the best um, comments that were made about this process was made on the Sean O'Rourke program last Friday. And it was said that the Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil framework document was like a coloring book, and that the smaller parties were being invited to come in and fill the spaces. I, I think that's actually a pretty good uh, uh, analogy. Just to continue that forward, the problem for smaller parties is they don't own the book and they didn't draw the pictures. So uh, they're just going to be let in to do the coloring. I would suggest that, again, uh, members and activists in those parties have a very close reading of the stability program update because actually what it suggests, and this could be the template for the Phenopole Fine Gael program for government, which, you know, small parties, if they go in, they'll be signed up to, is that while we are talking about there should be no return to normal, we have to do things differently in the future. Uh, Pat's mentioned a bigger role for the state. I've talked about democracy in the workplace. The problem is that the stability program updates projections for next year suggest that the government is trying to return to a fiscal normal that they outlined in the budget. Uh, that actually the expenditure in 2021 for public services and for, you know, for total government expenditure uh, is either the same or less than what the government was already projecting back in October. In other words, I think you will see a, a big push to bring public spending back in line with what was already promised. And therefore, it's unlikely to be a sustainable base to kind of do those things in terms of public services, uh, uh, income supports, climate change, housing, it's not going to be able to do that. So uh, the Fianna Gael Fianna Fáil program, uh, uh, I don't see any shift away from fiscal orthodoxy. Uh, they don't put it up front, uh, but there is certainly no pathway out of rethinking uh, and innovating fiscal policy going forward. But Finally, I just, you know, pick up on something that Pat said, you know, he talked about staying out is, is not cost free. Well, in, any decision a party makes, especially in difficult decisions like that, you know, uh, there's never a free ride anywhere. But I think that the smaller parties, again, should reflect, uh, are they staying out or is the decision actually what they really want to do is actually um, try to get in, but get in under a different context and di different conditions. I mean, uh, we talk about this word influence, but the problem is you can't measure influence. You know, we try to do that in terms of seats, you know, how many seats do you have as part of the total? Uh, that's about the only kind of, you know, statistical measurement you can do because influence is, is, is uh, very intangible. The program document actually makes the point, and I think that opposition parties should look at this closely, they say that a strong opposition can actually 
contribute to policy and change policy. We saw that over the last few years. So it's not as if you are working hard to create a strong opposition that somehow you're without influence. The document itself accepts that you will have influence. But while you're exercising that influence through building a strong opposition, what you are also doing is, for the first time, for the first time, is create the basis of a progressive government that excludes Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. I mean, in the past, and this usually meant labor, and I'm talking going all the way back into the, you know, the 50s. In the past, a smaller party would say, well, yeah, we'd have to go in with this larger party or that, because the alternative to Fianna Fáil is a Fine Gael-led one, or if we're in with Fine Gael, the alternative is Fianna Fáil, that's gone now. Right now, both the progressive bloc and the Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael bloc are pretty even up in terms of popular vote. They're fairly close on seats. So you might find that there will be uh, an election within the next 12, 18 months. This could be due to contradictions within the Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael construction. Uh, this could uh, uh, be due to uh, uh, all those events that we never see, or because there's an irresistible public demand to have a new election once the emergency is over, because it's a much different context in which we held the election back in February, and then having built a strong opposition, having built the type of sustainable policies that can be popular and draw in even more people, then the smaller parties could be in a progressive government where they would have much, much more influence uh, to implement their policies than under a Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael one. So those are the options. There are upsides and downsides to everything, but I would... My own view is that if you would look on the balance of probabilities, the downside is more with signing up to a Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil program, which really at the end of the day will still be largely informed by a fiscal orthodoxy, which will undermine um, the kind of programs that the smaller left parties and the larger left parties and the progressive civil society want to see implemented. Um, last word to you, Pat. Maybe you could also give us an idea, and as much as you have one, of what the thinking is within those small parties at the moment, whether it's changing in any way, whether there's a real debate going on within any of the parties about what their approach should be. I think if we look at the, the smaller parties, there's three smaller parties essentially in play, Social Democrats, Labour and the Greens. I think there is a fairly lively debate going on on precisely what we've been talking about within the Greens um, and I think that people are, you know, people's views come and go um, within the Greens. I think it's certainly true that Eamon Ryan was in favour of coalition early in this process. He couldn't deliver his party into that. There was something of a rebellion amongst his TDs. The argument has been raging uh, within the party since then. We'll get a better idea I think later this week of where it stands uh, when the Greens produce a document in response to the Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil document of last week. But uh, I think, you know, my, 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 my view a week or two ago was that the Greens were definitely out. I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder about that. Um, I spoke to Nasa Harrigan yesterday's their finance books woman who was I think one of the people who was cautioning against jumping into uh, coalition 
a couple of weeks ago and the tone that she was striking was a little more emollient, it seems to me. She spoke about the SPU yesterday not necessarily being a reason to stay out of government, even though, you know, I suppose on one reading, a small party on reading that document might run a mile from uh, from government. So I think that argument is ongoing and as yet unconcluded within the Greens. One uh, caveat to add to that, of course, is that the Greens needed two thirds majority of their members uh, to to enter such an arrangement. Um, I don't think there's a realistic prospect of the Social Democrats going into government. And I think that Labour is less likely to go into government than the Greens. Um, I think that uh, while the new leader, Alan Kelly, can see benefits of trying to rebuild from within uh, office, um, I think Labour still remains so bruised from its last period in government when it went in with 37 seats and came out with seven that the uh, the prospect of entering government again uh, might be simply too difficult uh, for the for the party to swallow, albeit that that may be changed if the Greens uh, made the leap. Um, so that's not really giving you a whole heap to go on you in answer to your question, except to say that I think it, it it's my view and I think the view within the relatively small number of people in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and outside that are trying to put this together, uh, that the Greens remain their best bet for uh, for a third party. By no means certain, and as of yet, I would say the balance of probability is that the Greens, uh, the Greens don't join it. But that's a view I may be willing to revise over the coming weeks. Well, we shall see. Listen, thanks very much to Michael and to Pat for for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer, Suzanne Brennan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. And do remember that if you'd like to support this podcast and indeed all the journalism which the Irish Times continues to produce at this very difficult time for Irish media, all you have to do is go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, where you can sign up for the introductory offer of one euro for the first month. Remember also, our sister podcast, Confronting Coronavirus, is in our existing Worldview podcast feed. And like this one, it can be found at irishtimes.com slash podcast or at all the usual platforms. And if you do want to get in touch with us, we'd be delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.